As you're being seated, if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We are in part 2 of our sermon of Eden's Roots. As we've been taking a look at this wonderful chapter, there is, as you can imagine, so much here as the introduction to the Bible, the introduction to God, the introduction to everything, the book of Genesis, which we're looking at. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, uh, but we're going to have a special focus um, here in verses uh, 8 and following. So, but do listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh God, we do thank you for this passage that you have for us. I pray that you would keep me from error as I preach it. I pray that you would open all of our hearts to know what it says and to believe what we hear. Help us to see what we see in this passage. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Titles and names are a funny thing. Because even without recognizing a voice, I can tell who someone is in relation to me based on how they try to get my attention. If I'm out in public and someone says, sir, I know that they don't know me. They're just trying to get my attention, but they're trying to be respectful about it. I know if someone else comes up to me and calls me Pastor Jessup, I know that they know of me, but they probably don't know me very well. If someone says Pastor Mark, well, then I know that they're probably a part of this church. That's what you all call me. Or if someone just uses my name, Mark, then I know that they must know me very well because they will have known me before and outside of my role here as pastor. Now, I'm not very much hung up on titles. You can call me Pastor Mark or Mark or whatever you like. But can you imagine if you were to come up to me and say, hi, Mark, and I were to turn around and say, that's Pastor Jessup to you. How would that strike you? What would I be doing? I would be defining our relationship, wouldn't I? I would say, you don't call me by my name. You don't know me that well. I'm putting a distance between you and me by calling, by making you refer to me by my title and last name. This is something that we're familiar with, or, or, or less so here in, in this country, but in humanity in general. If you were to address the Queen of England, you would call her Queen Elizabeth or Your Majesty. You wouldn't use the name Lilibet. That was only for her family. But here in Genesis chapter 2, we see a title change. We see the introduction of a very important name. And this is something that because we're familiar with it, this is one of those blink and you miss it. But it's very significant to the whole of this chapter, indeed the rest of Scripture, and even to the Lord's Supper's we're going to see today. So you'll see in your outline there are three points there. Last week we covered the first point, which God cares for the earth. We found out that human beings, mankind, is made from the earth. We called ourselves the dirt people. We're reminding ourselves who we are and who God is. But the fact that he cares for us, the earth. Well, today we're going to look at point number two. Which should shock us, based on what we saw in point number one, that we're the dirt people, but yet, point number two is that God covenants with humanity. That's what we're going to be looking at today, and especially our focus, which will be on verses 10 through 17 today. I said eight earlier, it was a mistake. Verses 10 and earlier. So, what about this title that I was talking about, making such an emphasis on? If you remember... Back in Genesis chapter 1, we saw God made the heavens, God made the earth, God did this, God did that, God, God, God. This was the title. And if you were to look into the original text, you'd see the word for God popping up all over the place in Genesis chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 2, and beginning in verse 4, we see something added to the title God. We see here in our Bibles... That's L-O-R-D, all in capital letters, Lord. 
The word behind that is God's name, which near as we can tell is pronounced Yahweh. We don't know exactly what the pronunciation is because the people who had written these things down were afraid to use God's name because they felt that this was, it was still remarkable to them that someone like God would have something to do with them and would invite them to use his name. But would be careful because they didn't want to dishonor it. So they would use the word, when they would come up to this word, Yahweh, they would pronounce the word for Lord, a tradition that has been held even to today, which is why we have it in the way we do. But here what this is saying is this is a name. Now why is that important? Well, this is, this is indicating closeness. This is indicating that God has made a promise between his people and in doing so has revealed his name, a closeness to him. Now, as we look onto this section, because this is just kind of added as we go along, and we'll see the significance of it as we get into verse 16 and 17. But for the moment, let's take a look at verses 10 through 14 very briefly, as we see this mentioning of where Eden was, these four rivers. Now, if you remember all the way back from your geography classes, you might remember where the Tigris and Euphrates is over there in the Middle East. That you might not know where Pishon or, uh, what was the other one, Gihon is. You might not know. I don't either. Turns out none of us do. This is, we, we have a couple of candidates. And in fact, if you want to see a map, there's a two possible locations for where Eden was. If you want to see that, I'll be posting the manuscript of this uh, sermon tomorrow, and I'll have a little link to a map that you can look at there. But I think the reason why this thing is here, there's a a theological significance to it, and the fact that water is flowing out, which is life flowing out from, from Eden. But what I think that this is meant to tell us is that Eden was in a real place. There's a real riverbank that still exists somewhere here in the world. Uh, That's where Eden was planted. We're not talking about Middle Earth and the Shire. Some fanciful place that is meant to to communicate to us true things, but but is in itself not real. That's not what we see here in Genesis chapter 2. It says, here's the river. You know the river where all the gold is. You know the river where we find the onyx stone. You're familiar with that, or at least the original audience would have been. So this saying, here's a real place. It really happened here. We do the same thing today when we'll put up those little historical markers up on the side that your dad's always pulling over to go read on your family trips, saying there's something significant that happened here. And that's what we're going to see here in Genesis. So what was that significant thing that happened here? Let's take a look. Here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And this is where we're going to camp here. Here God is, takes the man that he's just formed and he puts him in this garden of Eden that he's made. All these trees popping up everywhere. Beautiful paradise that he has set him in. And here what God goes through with him are these series of conventions that we can recognize as a covenant. Now, you may notice the word covenant doesn't show up here, but there are in many other places where God is making a covenant with his people that this fits this idea. 
First, let's start. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise, unbreakable, made between two people. Unfortunately, the ideas that we have today that that we would think might be a covenant pale in comparison to what they are. We think of like a business contract. You sit down with lawyers reading long papers, signing things you don't fully understand. That's not what a covenant would have been here. You can break a contract here if you have enough money. You can suspend the rules for yourself if you have enough gold. But that's not how covenants worked. Back then, if you were to make a covenant with somebody, one of the things that you would do, which we'll see spelled out for us in Genesis 15, you would split some animals apart, you'd leave them in their two halves on either side, walking down a center aisle making promises to each other. Does that sound familiar in an American context? But what the idea would be is by splitting these animals apart and having both parties walk through this line would be to say, if I'm going to break this promise, may God do to me what we've done to these animals. That's a pretty brutal promise to be making. You better be sure that's what you're doing. You're invoking God to kill you if you don't uphold these promises. Now, these could be made in between individuals. In fact, we will uh, see this pop up in, uh, in David's life when he makes a covenant with, um, with, with uh, Jonathan, Saul's son. We see this happen between countries where Joshua makes a covenant with, with the um, Jebusites. He wasn't supposed to do that, but he did. We can also see kings making covenants with other nations. But most importantly, we see the the pattern of God making a covenant with his people. We see that actually in Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn there real quick. In Exodus chapter 20, God is laying out his promises to his people and the terms of those covenants. If I'm going to be in a promise with you, here are the expectations. And it always begins with a brief history lesson with covenants. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. Notice that. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he gets into the commandments. That's a significant move, by the way. You'll notice God does not start out by saying, you are the people of Israel, the ones who have freed yourselves from slavery and found me on this mountain. Congratulations. You've earned your way into a promise with me. God, of course, doesn't say that because there's no way he could say that. It's the same thing in other covenants. We studied one today in our Sunday school class. We've been going through the the covenants that God has made. When he went through with King David in 2 Samuel 7, he says, I brought you out of the sheepfold and put you on the throne. Now here's what I'm going to do for you. Here we see a similar pattern here in Genesis chapter 2. He makes man, picks him up, and puts him in this garden. None of this Adam has worked for. None of this Adam was able to pull off on his own or even start. It's all grace from beginning to end. Here is this covenant that he's made. And in fact, Hosea 6-7 actually refers to this as a covenant. But what are the terms of this particular covenant? Here, 
God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And in fact, in the original language, God sounds Italian, where he says, eat, eat. It's done twice. We translate, surely you may eat. This is pointing to the generosity of what God is doing for Adam. An important point is when we get into Genesis 3. He's saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, except. Puts one commandment here. One caveat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you may, you will surely die. Here, what God has done for him is not given him an exhaustive list of don'ts. In fact, he's given him a lot more do's than don'ts. Given him to do, please, eat from everything that I have given to you. And here, here's a garden. I'm going to give you some work to do. Not only gives him provision, but he gives him purpose. We often think that work is the result of the fall. It's not. I find some of the unhappiest people are those that don't have anything to do. That have no purpose in life. And here what God is doing is he is putting him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That's really significant, those two words. It's why it's important to read the whole Bible. Because these words come up again. This is something that my old seminary professor, Dr. Ross, talked about. It says, these two verbs, keep and work, are used for spiritual service. These were the terms that the priests would have as they were taking care of the temple. And what it describes is that serve describes worship and service to the Lord. Here, the garden was the first temple, the first place of service to God. Another scholar brings this out. The implication of all this is that the purpose of work is more than an activity that allows a person to provide for his needs, but that work is a vocation which enables a person to fulfill a calling of service to others and to God. You hear what he's saying here? Work's not a curse. Work is a gift. Work is a gift to us to be able to give back to our God and to each other. And that it is present even here in the Garden of Eden. This is God's promise to him. Now we hear the terms of disobedience. What happens if you break it? We've got a pretty sweet life here. What happens if I disobey God? Well, God lays that out for him. He says, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Something that we'll see all the implications for in Genesis chapter 3. But then we can take a look at the flip side. Then it's like, well, then what does obedience mean? Obedience means life. Remember how we were talking about there were two trees here in the midst of the garden. Not just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life. Speculate that if they, well, not speculate, later on in Genesis 3, we'll find out that if he was obedient to this command, that he would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever in this state. This is a beautiful thing that God has given to his people. But what we see here in this passage, not only the fact that God makes a generous covenant, but we should really be amazed that God makes a covenant with us at all. 
to make promises to people that really can't give him anything. I mean, yes, Adam is being given the task of working and keeping the garden in the same way that we were asked as little children to hold the flashlight for dad. He doesn't really need you to do that. He could put it up on a stand. He wants to include you in his work. Here, this objective was to fill the earth with Eden. Give Adam and Eve a purpose to be ministers as well as kings of the earth. To bring God's blessings to the rest of his creation. Now, God could have done that. We see him speak the whole thing into existence. He doesn't need our help. But he lets us be a part of it. And more than that, it reveals who God is. This is the point that I want you to take from this. This is, again, we're referring to the book Thinking Through Creation by Mr. Watkins. What we're seeing here from, from God is something that is unlike any other religion, both ancient or present. In every other religion, you have to make a choice. Is your God transcendent, meaning above all things, or is he personal? Is he close to you, or is he distant? You have to make a choice. In the Greek and Roman world, they went with the personal. Lots of little gods. But they all had their very, very, very small jurisdictions. You had a god of your house who really couldn't do anything for you on the highway. If your cart broke down, you, then you should have been worried about the highway god because you apparently made him upset. Or if your crops failed, well, then you were probably calling out to the wrong one. It sounds like our customer service things today. You're always on the wrong number. You always need to be transferred. Because that individual God can't do anything for you outside of his jurisdiction. He's going to have to kick that one up the chain. But unfortunately, there was never anything supreme. There was never anyone that was untouchable. Never any one of these little gods that was transcendent. The same thing exists in Hinduism today. Millions of gods over all of these things, but no one of them being transcendent. Sure, they're a lot like you, with all your personality flaws too. Or you can go the transcendent route. Say, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to trade in. I'm more of an introverted person. I don't need to have a relationship. I'd rather have something transcendent. Well, there's options there for you too. Even in Hinduism, they just split them apart. We got the, this transcendent rule but that doesn't care about you. We think about this, we've kind of imported this and Americanized it, but the concept of karma, like gravity. If you jump off the building, you're going to suffer the effects of gravity. If you do something wrong to the universe, the universe will get you back somehow. But there's no personality to it. An ultimate transcendent force doesn't care about you. It's just all how you react to the force. You see this in popular imagination in Star Wars. Both good and evil people can use the same thing because it's just a force. It's just a math equation. Math doesn't care about you. Gravity doesn't care about you. It's just a force. You don't know it. There's no it to know. There's nothing personal about it. Well, this is a really hard problem to solve. Because if you have something that's near to you, 
then that means that there is need to be able to relate to creation. How can you have an impersonal, all-powerful force relate to something so limited and small as us? Well, at the same time, you have something limited and small as us. How can it do anything for you? Here, God manages to cross these lines and somehow manages to be both. We have the creator-creation distinction. You have God and everything else. Two modes of existence. Yet he's able to cross that boundary. He is above all things, transcendent and powerful, while at the same time being intensely personal and knowing you. And by the way, he doesn't have this personal element to him just because we showed up. Like he was just by himself, shivering in a corner, waiting for something to come along to have a relationship with. As we'll see later on in the the Bible, God is one God, but he's three persons. It's a trinity. I know. It's a mystery. It is God, after all. But he was already relational. He was already personal. There was already love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Fully satisfied in their own relationship. Do you know what happens when you are fully satisfied in a relationship? There's no fear there. God creates people, and it's not like, well, I really got to keep relations with these people right, because if I lose that, I lose all of my reciprocation and possibility for love. No. No, God stands above all of that, which makes it all the more impressive that he makes a covenant. He doesn't need to. All these other little gods, they require so much of you. They need to be fed. They need to be sacrificed, too. They need to be calmed, because they get angry and upset. Fly off the handle. That's not our God. He's above all of that. While at the same time, becomes intensely personal. To where he'll tell you his name. This is not some it must to not be named force out there. Someone who is so close to you that you know his name. This is the first covenant that he makes with people. You don't have a relationship with a force. You have a covenant with God, the creator of the universe, who has promised, based on himself, Swearing by his own reputation. There's nothing else higher than God to swear by. So he swears on his own reputation. On the pain of his own death. Which is not possible. He makes promises to you. Now. In this first covenant. The terms of these covenant. Were maintained as long as Adam and Eve were obedient. And as we'll find out in Genesis chapter 3, they were not. Which does point to the fundamental weakness of us. hmm? Adam and Eve, under perfect circumstances, could not keep the one rule that they had. He had two jobs. Look after creation and don't eat the tree. And that's what they did. They ate of the fruit. Oh, can you not relate? Now we would think... We'll see later on in Genesis chapter 3. But that means it's all over. God's going to ball them up and throw them away. He's not. Instead, he makes a new promise to them. 
is not dependent on them at all. That was always the plan. Demonstrate human weakness and then show how merciful he is to accommodate it. And he's going to make a new covenant. Now that new covenant we've seen already in our New Testament reading in Luke 22. Would that we had time to read the entire Bible and go through all the promises that he's made. But instead, we're going to go to the one that costs God the most in Luke 22. In Luke 22, Jesus is here. This Jesus is not just another teacher, not just another good man, not some sort of firstborn of all, not some sort of angel, but this is God himself. The transcendent Lord of all creation and earth has taken on the dirt people, taken on human nature, and is now sitting across the table with his disciples. How personal does that get? Eating with his disciples. Beyond this, he is going to make a covenant with them. Now, you remember how covenants are made? Something has to die, doesn't it? There needs to be blood to inaugurate this. Well, whose blood is this going to be? Let's look. Verse 20. Jesus lifts up the cup and says, This cup is poor, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see how personal God gets with you? We have a God who will take on human nature, tailor-made to suffer and bleed. To create a promise with you. Does that not stun you? It's one thing to say from a throne, I'll make a promise. It's another thing to drive a nail through your artery to make it happen. This is what Jesus is doing. That he's making a blood oath to us. I don't know how much more personal that gets. It's one thing to know my name. It's another thing for me to bleed for you. But that's what Jesus does. That's our God. In Luke 22. And that's what we're going to celebrate here at this table. We're going to celebrate and remember the forging of a new promise in God's blood for us. That's a pretty unshakable promise, don't you think? We feel pretty secure when we e-sign a document with a contractor. If the blood of the Lamb of God has been poured out to make sure that your sins can be forgiven... Not on the basis of your blood, on your effort, on your sweat, on your tears, but on God's to make salvation possible. Now, why did he have to do that? 
Is God just being extreme? Is God kind of histrionic? He's to make a large display of something in order to really communicate it to you? No, that's not what God's doing. You see, when Adam broke this covenant, he brought death into the rest of the world. And we'll unfold all of the ugliness of that in a couple of weeks. But when he brings death into the world, this is God's punishment for sin. So how do you overcome a punishment from God? How do you get over death? Does not that take everything? From the tiniest little bug to the stars in the sky, all of it experiences death. Nothing escapes. So how do you escape something ultimate? Well, you need something ultimate, don't you? You need something transcendent. But it can't just be transcendent. It's not just a punishment, it's a debt. We gotta pay it. You can't have gravity do your jail time for you. You need a person. And look at Jesus. The combination of both. The transcendent ultimate God in personal human flesh to defeat death, to satisfy God's just punishment for sin. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's table. That's what we remember. But you know what's interesting about this table? This table is not just some ballad to a fallen hero where we think about all these great deeds and memorialize him in song because there's really no other way to remember him because he's gone. That's not Jesus. He's not the dead hero. He's the living Savior. We see that even in what Jesus is saying in Luke. Look here in verse 18. It says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's not saying, I'm not going to drink from the vine anymore because I'm going away forever. No, he says, I'm not going to drink from the vine because I've got some work to do. But I'll come back. There's a cup with my name on it. Because I'm the king of the feast. And you all are invited. That's the invitation that's to you today as we come to this table. This is not just remembering a death, but is celebrating life eternal. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose again from the dead. So now this meal that we have, we have by faith with Jesus. Now. I know that sounds mysterious. That's what Jesus tells us. That this is a cup of blessing. A table. For us. So what does all that mean? You say, okay, great. That sounds like you've given us a wonderful philosophical concept. Transcendent versus personal. Fantastic. How does that help me in the office? How's that going to help me live a Christian life? Well, this was actually something I'd come across last week. Listening to a sermon. The preacher was talking about how we resist sin. Because sin makes promises to us, doesn't it? It wants to make a covenant with us. If you do what I tell you, then I'll give you what you want. 
Notice the contractual nature of that. Sin needs you. And it will pretend to give you pleasure. It will pretend to give you satisfaction. No matter what that thing is. Whether it's a physical lustful pleasure through pornography or through overwork, through drug use, through whatever. Sin is always making promises that it can't fulfill. Because sin is an ultimate. It's not personal. Sin doesn't care about you. It will just destroy you. But we believe those promises all the time, don't we? We fall for it. So how do we not? We remember the promises that God has made. Let the, pro- the greater promise that I will heal you. That I will bring you to a land that is of eternal life in heaven. Remember those promises when those false promises come up in front of you. And let the truth of those greater promises drive out the lies of those lesser ones. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. If Adam and Eve could have kept that in mind, there wouldn't have been a Genesis chapter 3. We'll see how all that unfolds. But for us, you've been given a promise by God himself. So rest in that. Believe in that. You get the bad news of the doctor. When you open up those bank statements. When you turn on the news. And there's all these promises coming at you of doom and despair. You can cut through all of those promises with God's word and says, yes, but there's a day coming. There is life on the other side of this because I have a covenant with Yahweh. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have together as we are reminded of the beautiful promises, not only that you have for us here in the passages that we've seen, But even in the pastors we haven't seen, the number of promises that you give to us today. Pray that you prepare us for the Lord's Supper. This greatest of all promises. Help our souls to be refreshed by it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.